0: Welcome back to another Impact Night of the Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 156. I'm your host, IDP for Azure Zone Thursday. My ex are Daniel Blanchard, John Marion, and Buddy Thornton. Buddy Thornton, please say hello to the people.
1: Good evening, everybody, and good evening to my esteemed panel mates. I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Awesome. And John Marion, please say hello to the people.
2: Uh, good, evening, good evening to everyone in the world, and I hope you really stay tuned and listen in. Uh, some really amazing people, and I'm very happy to be here and be part of it. And
0: Daniel Blanchard, please hello to the people.
3: Thank you, Isaiah. Uh, hey, Daniel Blanchard, hey, everyone. Glad to be here tonight. I, uh, I'm among some great people, and we're, we're going to share some great stuff with you guys tonight.
0: Well, wow, we are so grateful to have this lineup for tonight. Well, tonight's topic is bringing empathetic leadership back to school for this next 2022 to 23 school year. Interdisciplinary learning includes freedom of inquiry, critical thinking, deductive reasoning, and reasoning by anthology and synthetic thinking through integrated education. Empathetic leaders have most or all of those traits because they have a high propensity to care about humanity. They will compromise, but not if it goes against their core values, their social behaviors and their dispositions. They tend to be optimistic. They tend to be considerate and kind and they excel at leading transformational teams. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why. In 2019, 15.1 million students attended high school in the U.S. 3,209,510 students graduated from high school in 2020. In the educational system in the United States there are currently 26,727 high schools in the United States and 1.8 million teachers the graduation rate is at an all-time high of 85.3 percent education is healthy for the soul but are these numbers for real are they adequate or was these students just passed along? However, helping students find support systems are vital and have never been more vital for the soul than today. We are dealing with teaching the whole child. We have to because we need to be resilient because it seems like we're living in a doggy dog world. Well, let me go around the panel. But what was the first thought that... He- Cam, your mind when you got the topic for tonight.
1: Well, when I looked at the numbers on the the statistics, I uh, also had to look at a couple of other statistics. The average reading comprehension level across the United States is around fifth grade level. So it's really curious to me how people can be graduating at an 85% success rate when so few people can read above a fifth grade uh,
0: reading level. And I think that's where I kick off my part of the discussion. Wow. You know, I was talking to John Marion. This was one of his ideas to talk about empathetic leadership and so and just transformational leadership as a whole. And I really want to ask him, John Marion, what was your thoughts when you got this topic for tonight?
2: There's so many thoughts. I mean, you know, first of all, I would say that the, the whole education system needs a complete revamp. I mean, there's there's very little that children are learning that are going to help their future. They're not teaching these kids any social skills. They're not teaching them anything about empathy. They don't even know what the word means, empathy. They don't understand that empathy is about active listening and deep listening. They don't know they don't understand what that is. So so teachers can have some level of empathy, but they got to teach that to the children so that they can leave and that becomes the future. So when I think of empathic leaderships. I also think about being inclusive. You know, my director of my program, Harmony by Karate in New York City, my lead is an EI leadership director, an empathic, inclusive leadership director, meaning that society struggles with the integration of all the diversity and really that collective whole, that understanding. We're still wrestling with that. Humanity's wrestling with that. And then empathy is kind of like the heartbeat of all of it. When we, could, when we no longer see differences in differences, when we see the oneness in humanity, then we could begin to educate. We're not even on that page. And then the stuff that we're actually, you know, educating children on is information that was the same from the Industrial Revolution. You know, Adolf Hitler, his scientists had that same education. And they took the science of what they learned, because they didn't have any empathy, and they decided how many millions of people can be killed in a small space. And that's the same education we have now worldwide in most places, not everywhere. There are places like the Netherlands. It's more holistic. There's more heart-centered education. There's places that really are progressive. We're so behind in this country, it's pathetic. And it's tiresome to talk about it. And I've only got one city in the United States that woke up, who's now integrated my Harmony Power program as a mandate, where kids are recognized for the good they're doing, they realize that art-centered learning Has to be at the forefront I can keep going But I want to get Some breathing space Because you've got Some amazing people On this panel And I really want to hear Their voices
0: Wow that was beautiful What you said uh, I enjoyed every drop of it You know Emotional intelligence Is so so key And I was talking to uh, Dave Leitchard, um Before we started This podcast And we were kind of Talking about You know How of the microcosm system uh in the world where you have you know the insect animal kingdom and the insect kingdom how they are so um, driven for survival and it, and it brings them to a system of survival of the fittest and we were kind of talking about how It seems like this is something that humanity has been challenged with, and that's why we have different, I guess, religions and stuff like that to keep that balance. But, you know, Daniel, bless you. So, so glad to have you. You're welcome here on this podcast, sir. Great, sir. And when we gave the topic for tonight, what were the thoughts that entered your brilliant brain, sir?
3: Well, oh, oh, thank you. I say, appreciate it. I think empathy, and then in how it relates to the whole doggy doggy world here. Uh, you know, I think empathy is like the, you know, empathy is one of the highest forms of intelligence out there, and it's something that's often overlooked. You know, I know we just referred to like the social emotional learning, social emotional intelligence, something that's lacking from uh, you know today's students and even many of the adults. You know, I'm saying. And, and so many are missing that empathy. And sadly, some people think you're soft, you know, if you're like empathetic, you know, and that's not to be confused with like sympathy. Empathy's a little different. You know, sympathy is like, you know, I feel bad for somebody, but empathy is like, you know what? I feel like I can walk at least a few steps in their shoes and I can feel what they feel and kind of get it a little bit. You know, not totally, because none of us can really walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, but if we can maybe you know, envision or feel that we're walking at least a few steps in their shoes. You know, that's more of the empathetic and that's the highest intelligence out there. And it is not a weakness that some people consider to be. It's very, very important So now, what's going on today with that is almost the exact opposite. You know, uh, it, you know, once we got beyond, let's say, you know, going way back real quick, once we got beyond the ability to survive the animal kingdom, you know, and we're in our clans and our villages and our towns and our cities, and we're not so worried about being eaten by saber-toothed tigers anymore, now all of a sudden it's like we kind of turned on each other. And there's been a push and pull, you know, from that, where there are times when, you know, we are empathetic, and we do look for the collective good, and then there are times when, you know, throughout history, when we're just trying to, like, you know, uh, social Darwinism. You know, and all that. Winner take all, survival of the fittest, all that stuff. And we see that every single day in the animal kingdom. But so that, that, that kind of weans and waves uh, you know, in the, in the humankind kingdom. And lately what I'm seeing is that it's really kind of like going back to that killer instinct, that winner takes all, the doggy dog world. I mean, I was just talking, I'm in Connecticut here. I was just talking to, uh, you know, the founder of um, the, the Virginia uh, aspiring leadership Academy for special education. And, uh, you know, he was telling me that over in Virginia, if if I got this correct, he said that the, uh, the board, the, uh, uh, the the state of education department over there was forced by law to stricken off of their website, any reference at all to equity or equality, you know, inclusion has become like a bad word. You know what I'm saying? So we get these things. I mean, this is all about the collective good when you're talking about equity, equality, inclusion, you know, uh, differentiation, you know, um, uh, trauma-based learning. You know what I'm saying? When you're doing all these things, you're trying to include everybody in. And when you're not including anybody, everybody in, now we're going back to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the pyramid, where only the top or have any leisure time to like make the great discoveries of the world. What about all the other people beneath that that are just, you know, fighting for their lives just to get food? You know, those people, they're not going to have a chance to go out and solve cancer or anything like that because they're just fighting for food. You know what I'm saying? So if we got uh, everybody up toward the top of the pyramid, you know, everybody included, we got the equality. we got the equity, we got the inclusion, you know what I'm saying? We take our people that have had, let's say trauma in their life and we give them a, maybe a, you know, trauma sensitive, trauma induced, uh, or, or sensitive, I should say, I guess, uh, opportunity to learn. Um, you know, we're raising, we're raising all people up and when you raise all people up, you know, there's going to be some people in there that are going to be able to do great things. You know what I'm saying? Maybe one of them does solve cancer. But if we don't ever give them a chance, you know what I'm saying? And that's kind of, you know, where I'm seeing the public school system is crumbling. You know, the uh, enrollment is down for public school systems big time. The special education referrals are up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, The the, the more elite families are pulling their kids. Out of the schools and putting them in the private schools, and I'm going to say this, and I know some people may not like this, but there seems to be some kind of movement from some people that they they like seeing this. They're happy that the public school system's crumbling. That last year, 47 percent of schools in the United States were short teachers. You know, saying and now you know you're looking at maybe half of the teachers that are present are considering leaving. You know, you got the great tsunami coming, you got the turnover coming. You know, you got so many things going wrong with public schools, and that this is going to give the opportunity to a few individuals to set their own agendas and profit heavily from it. Some people may not like me saying that, but this is a crisis we're moving into, and it really is looking more and more like winner take all. And I, I don't think we can let that happen in this country. Um, and again, I can, I can go on about this for a long time, but you know, I, I want to make sure everybody has a chance to speak tonight. So I'll stop there.
0: Incredible. You know, I hear so much passion. And, and the passion, I think passion is the force that drives empathy. I, I really believe that. When you talk about a collective good in the midst of chaos, there's love. And that love has that passion. And with passion comes compassion. And and now love is fighting chaos. Love is fighting hate. Love is fighting the doggy doll world complex and this is that Push and pull This is that Wrestling match But I'm going to tell you something folks Love is the greatest fighter Of all time And because You're on the side of love Guess what You win You win We need people That have love And that have gifts Because love is not Love is one part of it But it's not enough. We need people that have specialization skills. We need people that can take complex situations that we talked about thus far and translate it into different languages. We need people that can come up with strategies that can modify, what needs to be modified to accommodate those people that need to be accommodated. We need to evolve. We need to evolve. We need A new novel approach we've been preaching resiliency for years but i think it's time we preach something else i want to open the panel up with this question panel is open i want to ask this question right here how do we create conditions in which empathy can thrive in our social interactions not only with people but i think it should start with family first And then from there go in a bi-directional way to friends and community and associates the panel is open who wants to take that question first
1: the first thing that's got to happen is we've really got to stop the talking heads and the people who are quote-unquote leadership saying that they know more about the education space than the educators themselves I hear people, uh, legislators and uh, talking heads on the radio uh, who say, we need to take SEI out of the school. We need to take all the social, emotional, everything out of the school. We need to quit candy in the kids, and we need to force them to... Learn the standards. We need to learn, they need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to write. They need to learn arithmetic. And that's all they need. And when they use the words, that's all they need, that shows they are absolutely and totally clueless about what the education system is all about. The education system is not about teaching people numbers. It's not about teaching people letters. It's about teaching people how to be functional adults when they get out of school. That's the only goal. That should be the only goal for parents. That should be the only goal for society as a whole. We need functional adults. I don't need someone walking into my office to apply for a job who can't read the application. And I have that 60% of the time, 60% of the time. I don't need people telling me that social skills are irrelevant. When Google, one of the biggest companies in the world, did a 10 year study, and they said there's only eight skills that people really need to succeed in corporate America or anywhere else, and seven of those skills were soft skills, and the technical skills, which were the only one that was not a soft skill, was the dead last of the eight. Social skills matter. Empathy matters. And if kids are not taught socialization, they're not allowed to be social animals, if they're not allowed to create their own environment where they learn to be social animals, all the hard skills in the world are going to get them absolutely nowhere because they're not going to fit within the culture that they're going to need to fit into to be a functional adult. They're not going to be able to work at a company if they don't have any social skills. That's the biggest problem. How do you create conditions? I'll tell you stop assimilation quit complaining about acculturation and go all the way to what the engineers would love social amalgamation when you amalgamate something you take the best of other things out of all these different products you meld them together like alloys in metal an alloy is always stronger than any solitary metal that's why it's combined that's why it's created They now have nets. They have fibers that are stronger than steel because they've learned to amalgamate things together in very specific ways. These kids need to understand that they matter and then they need to understand that how they treat other people matters and they need to have to wear the shoes of the other person to understand that. Empathy doesn't really happen full blown until you're in your late teens or early 20s. But empathy starts by the time they have abstract thinking, 11 or 12 years old. They start learning about empathy. They start learning about sympathy. And they have to separate the two. And they can't do that when they're sitting there being force-fed writing, reading, arithmetic, and social skills are being ripped out of the school. That's what the problem is. Quit Ripping the socialization out of the school because I've never met one teenager in all of my years as a parent coach Who didn't focus on their socialization before they ever worried about anything else? So if you block them from doing that what you do is you demotivate them You turn them into I'm not going to be a student because you're not allowing me to do what's natural for me as a teenager And so what do we end up with? We end up within a society that has a fifth grade average reading level, and that includes all of the people. That's the factor, all the people. So if you take all the PhD holders and you take all the people who have master's degrees and all these people are super intelligent, and you realize that the mean, the average is fifth grade reading level, then you have to be blind not to see the problem.
0: It's getting hot. Who's next? Who's next? panel
3: Well, I'll jump in. Dan Blanchard here. I answered the last question, Isaiah, as a... um, I'm a special education teacher that teaches all the history classes in my um, school. So um, I answered the last question coming from the lens of a special education teacher. But when you talk about creating the conditions, I think this time I'm flipping my hat over to the social studies teacher. And I'm going to answer from a social studies perspective. I believe to create the conditions that we need to to make kids more successful, make society more successful, we gotta go back to like, let's say, President Johnson in 1960s. He's the last president that had the political backbone to say, you know what, the problem is bigger than just, you know, let's say, uh, low test scores. It's bigger than that. You know, we have to uh, give these kids a, a, a motivation, a chance, That when they're in school and they're looking forward to finishing school, that they're going to have a chance to have, let's say, a job that can pay the bills, a decent paying job. You know, President Johnson went at this whole war on poverty thing. Too bad the Vietnam War just kind of cut his knees out from underneath him with that. And this war on poverty thing never really fully got its legs. But, I mean, he was trying to tackle the bigger problem, the societal issues of what was going on out there. And if you can make society a better place um, for people, a place of more hope, you know, more opportunities for people to let's say live like middle-class people instead of like fighting it out in the trenches of doggy dog. um, uh, You know, there's a chance that the kids are going to be in school and have some motivation and start raising those test scores, start Being socially more, uh, uh, better, better socially. I mean, they're terrible right now, socially. So, but when President Johnson, uh, you know, didn't get it done, uh, the presidents that came in after him, uh, they just didn't have that political backbone, and it was almost like they were looking for like a scapegoat, you know, so all right let's just blame the teachers that's the easy you know the easy way uh, we'll blame the teachers we'll bring in more you know some educational programs now you know maybe at some point it took a long time some point we'll give teachers professional development you know and now here we are you know 60 years later or whatever it is uh, and you got some of the most educated teachers the teaching workforce we've ever seen you know you get professional development all over the place and this wasn't something that was happening decades ago but it's happening now and we get some of the hardest working most educated educators this country's ever seen and then what's the result fifth grade reading level that doesn't add up i mean there's obviously something wrong there you know just going after the teachers and the schools alone without looking at the bigger issues I think is, um, is really hurting us. It's really hurting us and it's creating the conditions for those fifth grade reason levels. So we need to think bigger, we need to do bigger and, uh, and this country can do it if we can, uh, you know, have the political backbone to do it. And right now, we're, we're politically so divisive and, and uh, I, maybe that's not perfect. You know, so we can't get anything done. You know, we gotta get on the same page politically and get the political backbone to make this country a better country to get everybody an opportunity i mean that's what builds uh inner motivation you know versus uh everyone knows the inner motivation a much better motivation than external so you know give these people a hope give give them a chance and they'll be more internally motivated to do better, you know, more, uh, motivated to bring up those, uh, test scores, those, those reading levels. And, and, and maybe there's social, emotional intelligence as well.
2: I gotta tell you, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, just really excited to share my thoughts. And, but I'm, I'm inspired by your panel. They're inspiring me to share with you my background and, and what I have to offer this discussion, which I have a lot to say. Um, first of all, I'm an Air Force veteran. Uh, secondly, I secondly have a master's degree in spiritual development with the State University of New York. So a lot of this, this, uh, these, t- these topics, these things we're talking about, I've studied, i learned, I'm still learning. I don't think a master's degree is anything but a new beginning in, in, uh, in learning and in academics. Uh, and thirdly, I ran for Congress in the 10th District of New Jersey So as a libertarian. So I have an understanding of the parties, I understand the politics. Uh, it is the politicians that have created the education system and they run the education system and they're funded by the corporation so keep in mind that there are there are plays at hand that are, that are uh, they're laughing their way to the bank and they and the the education system is, is there to create laborers not leaders so understand that that's so what's coming what's happening is you have now uh the social media you have uh The internet that's now uh, bringing everything to a boil with with its ugly heads. We're looking at what has always been. Things are not necessarily getting worse. What we're doing now is we're able to see things in ways that we never saw before. And we don't like it. And people are not happy with it. And they know it needs to change. The solutions are very simple. It's the people that are complicated. Solutions are simple. I'll give you one solution, right? I ran for Congress. If I had the, if I could make the decision, I would, I would take away state testing, eliminate it. And the only test that that child would take in middle school, because these tests are short kids, they, they commit suicide, it, it creates a tremendous downhill spiral for a lot of kids. That test would only be taken to decide what those children's strengths and passions are. So they could end up taking classes and courses that they actually enjoy. So they can enjoy learning. So when they don't enjoy learning, they're being force fed information they're never going to use and they're going to forget. It, it is so crippling to their self-esteem and they will want to know why they're at a fifth grade level. Are you kidding me? Are we actually asking that question? We shouldn't be asking that question. We should be looking at the common sense, like what, what are they actually learning and why are they learning it? It doesn't serve them that's that's the issue like when i realize and i travel the country i'm like why are these kids bullying themselves and each other i'm like why why is this such an epidemic it's always been and now we're like addressing bullying first it was abuse every every child was abused their parents abused them kids it. now it's bullying why is it not changed why because the system is set up that every time a child does something wrong it's suspended expelled jail time that's the system I went and said, you know what? I went and I had the political debates. I'm like, we need a system that's the opposite where children are recognized for the good they're doing, but it's a mandate just like every other thing that they do. Not always, oh, you know, if that child does well, we'll give them some kind of, word. I'm like, no, it's harmony power. And we're gonna just, we're gonna look at that child, use their existing courses, see what they're good at. They do a project, they get the award, they do artwork, they do music, they dance, Whatever it is they do, they create things that they love to do and they get recognized and it goes in the report card the same way everything else does. And the teachers get award, they get the Honorary Power award, they get in their evaluations. That's what I did with 28,000 kids in the city of Elizabeth, New Jersey. That was the first city in the state of New Jersey that mandated in public school that kids wear uniforms. Why? Why would they wear uniforms? So they could be mind-centered they don't walk around with their pants hanging down because that's not, that's the culture. You can wear what you want, dress as you want. I love the urban culture. I just don't think it's appropriate when they're going to learn. You have to wear the uniforms. So they're in mind-centered education. But when it comes to doing good and, and learning how to be heart-centered, that's the most important thing. When you talk about empathy, empathy starts within. If they don't feel who they are, how can they feel what anyone else is feeling? You know, when kids pull a, the trigger on a gun, I had this debate with another politician. They're like, oh, I want to enforce the gun control law. I'm like, well, I'm like, what the hell is that going to do? That's not going to do any good. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, they don't have feeling. That's why they pull the trigger and they shoot each other. You, don't you get it? I told this, I said, you go home to your nice family, your nice neighborhood with your nice car. They don't have that. Because I've been in those neighborhoods. And I walk in, I've I, I risked my life to go into neighborhoods that nobody wants to go into. And I've done a massive assemblies because I love these kids and I care about them. And that's the truth of it. I said, so I said, if we don't have this party power mandate, she sat down and started writing a bill for the whole state, which never happened. I had to go past that bill and get it a city mandated. So there's your answer that's a major impact you should see the videos of what these kids say about harmony power this is just one example but I believe that harmony power is the solution to all of this that we're talking about
0: right now so you know now you heard heard my wow (laughs) (laughs) listen the conversation is so powerful I have to be very careful I I feel like I'm walking on eggshells Um, you know there were so many seeds dropped there were so many seeds dropped. I mean, you talked about from EI, emotional intelligence, okay, from emotional intelligence to the different systems uh, that we have to navigate. And But let me talk about what, you know, Buddy and Daniel said, and, and you, John, uh, because there were so many seeds. What I saw, because I'm, I'm a visual learner. What I saw, what it reminded me of, it reminded me of the life cycle of a butterfly. The life cycle of a butterfly. You got this adult butterfly flying around, lays eggs. Okay? Then this egg turns into, I believe, a caterpillar. And this caterpillar is, is slugging its way around. You know, eating anything in this path that it can eat. Trying to survive. Trying not to be eaten by the surroundings, the environment. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to eat this caterpillar. So here's this caterpillar moving along, trying to be undetected, trying to camouflage itself to its surroundings because its insight tells it. Its instinct tells it that he's on the lower level of the feeding cycle, so it's crawling, it's hiding, it's camouflaging, and then if it makes it, it becomes a cocoon. When it's a cocoon, it's it's still not safe (laughs) because the rain could knock it over. The the forces of nature can destroy it. Okay? But if it survives, if it survives being in the cocoon, it's birthed into a whole new evolution. It's birthed into a whole new modification. It is in a different atmosphere It's in a different dimension. It's now gone from crawling on the ground to being aerodynamic. It's now gone from having to take weeks to get from, one, from point A to point B to now taking mere seconds to get from point A to point B to point C. And so that's what I got tonight from this takeaway that seed, that seed that I believe is transferable. But how can we transfer this seed? To it reminded me of something else. Let me tell you real quick. <laughs> My mind was all over the place. It reminded me of when I first started raising cichlids. Cichlids are a fish. You have, I think, the major cichlid families are uh, South American cichlids and African cichlids, and I had them both. But when you have African cichlids, they are more territorial than South American cichlids. So I had to buy more South American cichlids because I like having a lot of fish in my fish tanks or in my fish aquariums. But what I noticed is there is a system that they set in place, there's a hierarchy where they do whatever they have to do To set this system up, and that taught me something very deep, and that is, for us to exist, there has to be a system. There has to be a structure, there has to be a government, there has to be jurisdiction for us to have order. And so when I put new fish into this fish tank, they would go through this procedure, (laughs) this procedure of teaching this new fish, if they let it live, okay, this is how we play on this playground. This is how we play on this playground. I believe based off of the conversation we had tonight, which was, it's not over by the way. (laughs) I haven't even started asking questions, but, based off the question we had tonight about conditions I, I wanna say I believe that, you know, I don't know, I I think some of the teachers are doing a good job. We got teachers on the podcast tonight. I'm everyone on the podcast is a teacher. But let me ask you a question real quick. Are we doing a good job at assigning mentors and trained professionals, experienced people to mentor the uh the new teachers coming on the scene, the new uh, consult, educational consultants come around and scene. Are, are we doing a good job? Or are we like obscured? Where are we at? That's my question. The
1: problem, the problem in society is that most educational systems are district led. You don't have continuity between the districts. You don't have continuity within a school. You've got a certain number of teachers who are committed to teaching to the system and staying within the system, and they live and die with the system, and then you have other teachers who want to do their uh, IEPs, and they want to focus on the individual students. They want to treat them as individuals. They want to learn about them. They want to love them. They want to try to get them to a certain place. They look for individual trait selection, and they try to make sure they meld the classroom together in a certain way but with so many different ideologies in each school and with each district being autonomous, you don't have continuity. So you can have all the experts in the world, but as we have talked with our nonprofit, when you're gonna go into a school, the first thing you have to do is you have to do a pre-assessment. What kind of school is it? What's the culture in the school? What's the dynamic in the school? What's the socioeconomic balance in the school? What are the problems that the administrators and the teachers speak of? What are the problems that the boots on the ground staff say is the underlying issues in the school? If you don't do that pre-assessment and then you don't have the right professional to deal with what each campus has to share, you can't improve that campus. And what works on one side of the street is not gonna work on another side of the street. So are we doing a good job of assigning mentors for schools? How can we? You said it yourself, there's 26,000 plus high schools, there's 1.8 million teachers. You have to revamp the system. The district-led situation and the funding that they do by districts and by, by zip codes in the United States has got to change. There's no way we can have a proper mentoring system given the current condition. You don't even have members on school boards and, and people who are in these policy-making situations that agree with each other in the same room. So, no, you can have some fantastic mentors. You can have some fantastic professionals, but they have to ad hoc every time they walk onto a campus, and that is a recipe for disaster. They do the best they can do, but is it ever going to be enough? Dan Blanchard,
3: Um I don't think our teachers are getting uh, good mentoring, and, and there's a lots of reasons for that. You know, what was just expressed is uh, very true, but um, I think about the Nordic countries, for instance. The Nordic countries, uh, yes, they have a lot of things going for them, and they're different than the United States, but there's a few things we can learn from them. And one of the things is they don't spend, the teachers there, they don't spend almost the entire day in front of students, you know, they have more time than the American teachers, or teachers here in the United States. Uh, The Nordic teachers have more time with each other, collaborating, planning, you know, opportunities, let's say for mentors to come in and work with them. Um, You know, I kind of like, sometimes I compare it to let's say football, you know what I'm saying? During the week you're preparing, uh, you know, all week long for the game on Sunday, you know, the big game on Sunday for the, uh, you know, here in, the, uh, here in Connecticut, you know, the Millennium Pages is the big team, uh, you know, the New York Jets and New York Giants. But, uh, you know, they prepare all week long and they get the big show on uh, Sunday when they go out and play football. And there was a lot of preparation that went into that. Here in the United States, with the teachers here, you know, that big show is at least five times a day, that big show. You know, for some teachers, it could be six times a day, that big show. So if you're in front of students, the almost the entire day, just one after another, after another, after another, after another, um, when do you have the time to play catch up? And don't forget, these teachers, they got to create papers, make phone calls, uh, do research, create lesson plans. You know what I'm saying? Uh, all sorts of things pop up. they got to go talk to the guidance counselor, go talk to administration. So when do they get quality time with, with a mentor? And- it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible for today's teachers in the United States to get good quality time with mentors. And even if mentors aren't in the team, let's just say peers, you know, peers, uh, you know, for collaboration. When do they get that time? You know, it, it's almost nonexistent. I mean, some schools find a way to squeeze it in a little bit, you know, maybe two pairs a week on a data team or something like that. And the schools that have managed to pull that off, good for them. But that's not enough. You know, teachers need more time for collaboration, more time to like uh, to to learn, more time to practice. You know, their craft. Uh, It wouldn't be great if you got to practice your craft at least once in a while in front of uh, friendly peers or a mentor, and then they say, okay, here's how you work out the kinks on that. Now get in there, get in that classroom, and deliver that same lesson with these little tweaks. You know what I'm saying? Uh, That doesn't happen here in the United States. It can't physically happen. You know, when the teachers are, you know, uh, doing five shows a day, some of them six shows a day, and they're in front of students all day long and have almost no time for like planning, mentoring, collaborating, all those things that we know uh, that, that will help. So, I, you know, I don't see, you know, unless something happens, if that, something happens that changes, I guess, the system uh, and and it gives the educators that time to, to do those things, uh in my eyes, the good mentoring can't possibly happen.
2: I, I got to tell you, I, I'm very, you know, there's a lot of things I learned about the system. I'm always learning. But I feel that teachers um, are overworked and underpaid. And I think a lot of people already know that. And I, don't, I believe that once again, like I said before, solutions are simple, people are complicated, they complicate everything. So if if the content of what content of what children are learning is really for their future, they would extract a lot of the bullshit that they have in the system. A lot of stuff they don't even need. And if they were guided the right way to things they were passionate about and doing courses that are actually going to use in the future that are in their passions and learning more life skill kind of education. Like they're doing math, how does that math apply to real life? Can they they do accounting? Like nothing that they learn is actually shown how they can use it for their future, right? So they need to learn those life skills to not only survive but to thrive. Now, that's as far as the teachers are concerned. But I, don't, I also feel that the union served their purpose, but it should never be at the expense of children learning, where teachers will collect a check and they can do the same thing and be lethargic and, and be careless and get by and still maintain their job status with any firing to them but the same breath i also believe in their protection and the union does have its purpose but i feel that there it's it's imbalanced that way teachers should get a higher pay but there should be more of a uh, a demand on what's expected of the quality of teaching but not the quantity they shouldn't be spending their doing marathons of teaching for less money i think it's a it's a disaster that way i think that the the uh, administrators like the principals of schools i mean there are stories like you can have a principal, let's say, uh, has changed, literally changed their principal's position has been to four districts within a five-year span. Because when they hire these principals, they're now looking at the records of what happened to them when they left. But we can't disclose their records because in the district that lets them go, let's say they, uh, they have tenure in three years and they don't make that tenure. Well, there's a reason why. Maybe they have an explosive personality or they don't get along with the teachers, or they're not cultivating teachers. There's an issue, a major issue with the leadership, with principals. And that's not something you ever hear about, but it's a fact, because I've seen things and I've heard things that are rather significant. It starts at the top. That's how it starts. If you have a a principal who's a powerhouse, who's loving and kind and and a force the people, the teachers are so happy to work for a principal like that. If you have a superintendent like that, even better. And superintendents, like, you don't even, they don't even respond to emails. They're, like, inundated with hundreds of emails. So you can never even talk to a superintendent, I know, because they've been all over the country. These people, like, unreachable, untouchable. And it should never be like that.
0: How do you give your team but, contact? how do you how well no I'm, let me rephrase the question how should we give our teams ongoing contact for support like you do because you have a diverse team I mean when I say diverse team I mean diverse team you have African American people that that work for your company you have transgender people that work for your company right. I mean, you have a very diverse. you know how do you know You
2: know, have what well, this this the, what I did with my my, my lead teachers transgender African American like I mentioned to you from South Carolina, I just you know recently okay. gave them a position where I released my power, offered them gave them the reins to um, help cultivate and train the staff and bring get the staff and raise their level so it 's about trust I and mean, instilling trust in the right people at the right time. And well, I know, and but how, how do you give them support?
0: How, right, but, but how, how are you because, giving them support? Because you, you ha, you ha, you, you,
2: you, I give them support by, like I mentioned, with deep listening, active listening. First, you have to do that, right? Because you can never be, like you said, pulling anyone's shoes. That's always been my way. And once I'm able to do that and do that well, then I can give them constructive feedback on whatever it is I'm trying to. Uh, Employ or try to execute or to teach for that matter. That's the secret. That's like 90% of it. And what a lot of people do is they talk at people, they don't feel anything, and they're not really communicating anything. They're not really serving in in any capacity because they're not doing that. There's a lot of preaching, but there's no real teaching. You know, it's interesting.
3: I've had a lot of success with some of the toughest students Over the last two plus decades, of twenty-five years, I've always worked with very, very difficult students, and yet I've always seemed to, you know, get along with them and help them make progress in life and help them see life different, you know. And I've had some of them that have gone off and have been very successful, you know. When they've come back, you know, to visit, uh, which, which they always do, you know, I've asked a few of them. I said, "Hey, you know, how did you, you know, just climb out of all of it and become successful?" You know, what I'm saying, and a few of them. You know, said, oh, you know, Mister, Mister, I, I was trying to I was trying to be like you. That's all. You know what I'm saying? So I mean, it was so touching to hear them say something like that. And uh, you know, just recently, um, uh, I had a group of students that said, uh, you know, I was teaching something. I don't know how it all happened. And this group of students said, "Hey, Mister, you know why we don't give you a hard time and we give all the other teachers a hard time?" I go, I don't know why. You know why do you do that? And they go. It's because you don't act like you're better than us. You know what I'm saying? So again, now we're talking, you know, walking in their shoes, right? We're talking about that intelligence called empathy, you know, the highest intelligence. You know, I feel that if you're in that classroom as a teacher, whether you're in a, you know, an affluent neighborhood or whether you're in, you know, the inner city neighborhoods, particularly if you're in the inner city neighborhoods, I think that you have to walk in those classrooms, and you have to go in with the mentality that you're all on the same team. I mean, these kids are your teammates. You know what I'm saying? These kids are my teammates. You know, I want them all to succeed, and I succeed when they succeed. You know what I'm saying? That's the team. The team succeeding. And I think when you go in with that kind of mentality, that kind of attitude, you know what I'm saying? teaching is a pretty good place to be. You know, I've had a lot of, you know, good times over the years, and I've had a lot of really difficult kids. Now, I'm not saying I've always been successful, and I'm not saying every single day has always done well. You know what I'm saying? I've had some bad days, heck, I've had some bad weeks, some bad years, but all in all, I've had a lot of success and a lot of fun being a teacher, you know, and seeing my students, you know, rising, uh, you know, to so places where others didn't think they could go, you know. And that stuff, that, that makes me feel great as a teacher. And I think that teaching isn't for everyone. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think anybody could be a teacher, but, it, but, it, but it's not for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could learn to be a teacher, and if you have, you know, some empathy in you, um, you, could, you could do well. Uh, but there's just some people, let's just say, they're, they're, they're not up for it. You know what I'm saying? And if that's the case, then they should go do something that they're suited for. All right? So I'm not saying everybody should teach, but I'm just saying if you're in that classroom and you're looking at it, you know, in some of the ways I just told you to look at it, you'd be surprised at how rewarding teaching could be. It could be one of the best jobs in the world for people out there, and they could really make a difference out there. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote my first book was because for over a decade, my students came to me, and they were different students over the decade, and they kept saying, hey, mister, you're the most inspiring teacher I've ever had. You should write a book and tell other people what you tell us. You know, for 10 years, I was like, oh, no, 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 thanks. I'm not really, I'm not really a good writer. I can, couldn't see me doing that. But after 10 years, I started saying, you know what? Maybe my students are seeing something that I'm not seeing. Maybe I should put my faith in them the way I asked them to put their faith in me. And then I I, I said, you know what, there's something here. So I I trusted my students, and I wrote a teen leadership book, you know, a leadership book for teenagers. And it turned out to be a great, great experience for me. And now I've got something out there when a kid says, hey, you should write a book. I said, mom, open open my desk drawer and say, there you go, you get yourself a book. You know what I'm saying? This is good stuff. So, I mean, not only have I made a difference in these kids' lives, but these kids have made a difference in my life. You know what I'm saying? And that's a pretty good place to be. And I think a lot of teachers to be in that pretty good place and make a positive difference in this world and send our kids out into that world better prepared to, uh, you know, be good people and do good things out there.
1: Uh, I want to give you my takeaway first. Uh, number two point. Number one we talk about the system and the fact that it's broken. The underlying reason it's broken is very simple. You have an entire class of leadership that is so far up in the stratosphere that they can't see the boots on the ground and they expect Neiman Marcus results on Kmart salaries. You can't do that. You just can't do that. Provide the time, Daniel was absolutely correct, Give these people time to grow into their competencies, and you need it with proper mentors, proper third-party vendors, people that can come in and help develop them and keep their mindset where it needs to be, and that's not on teaching to some artificial test. That's with a focus on making these children into functional adults. You know what? They'll learn how to do everything if you give them the heart center. Uh, As I've quoted myself before, I'm going to do it again. If you want to teach these kids, you've got to have them invite you in. You've got to reach their heart because that's the only path to their mind, and it's the only way to enrich their souls. I could go
3: next, Dan Blanchard. Uh, I'm going to keep this real short and sweet and simple. You know, as a teacher an educator, I'll say go out there, love what you do, love your students, change the world one student at a time and keep your eye on the big picture. Speak up when you can. Be brave. Be brave and speak up when you can when you think it can make the system better.
2: I would say to any teacher out there that, you know, regardless of what they might be dealing with as far as uh, feeling helpless, a lot of them feel helpless. They feel that they not able to make a difference. They feel like their, their hands are tied. That's a belief system they've got to unblock and realize as long as they have that room and they have the eyes of the children on them, that they can shift that completely. And they've got to work on themselves. People have to work on their own empathy. They have to work on feeling good themselves. And they they might be doing things that are outside the classroom where they're doing the proper self-care, so they're mentally prepared to deal with that classroom each time they go in there. And there are always those students that um, they can connect with if they really want to. And if they make that genuine connection, those students become the leaders for the others to follow, and they build allies that way, and that makes the the room of children that they're trying to connect with it makes it much more palatable. It makes it easier for them. and It makes the experience better for everyone involved. So they can look at an impossible, they can take an impossible situation they're perceived to be impossible, and then see all the possibilities, no matter how challenging it might be for
0: them. Podcast. follow us, follow us.